Welcome to the sixth and final episode of season three of the Bagley Wright Lecture Series on Poetry podcast. I'm Ellen Welker, coordinator for the series. Season three of the podcast includes lectures written and delivered by Terence Hayes during his tenure as a Bagley Wright lecturer. Hayes's lectures circle the work and life of Etheridge Knight, a poet who has been a muse and mystery and ghost mentor for Hayes throughout his career. In each of the six lectures we'll hear this season, Hayes uses Knight to anchor his broad explorations of poems and poetics. This week, we'll hear Hayes give a talk called DIY for Langston Hughes on Knight's poem for Langston Hughes and the crafting of political poems. This talk was originally given August 12th, 2015 at Breadloaf. Please enjoy this episode. So it's good to be here, uh, Michael and Jen and Noreen, you know everything everybody says, Jason, thank y'all. Uh, so you know, if I just read this thing, since I got to teach at 10, <laughs> we might be done. So let's do that. Um, oh, I, I do have, I'm just going to read what I have here. Expert guidance in literary problems, is that what Michael said? Yeah. I wouldn't call it expert. Uh, I wouldn't call it guidance either, <clears throat> but there are literary problems. Um, this is so it's broken into sections. The mountain standing in the way. Whether you like it or not, your genes have a political past, your skin a political cast, your eyes a political slant, was Laura Zimborska writes in her poem, Children of Our Age. While we might all agree with her, we might not agree on what it means to engage in a political art. We may not even agree on a definition of politics. I like the simple definition Fisher Ames, the anti-Jeffersonian Federalist, offered in 1806. Politics is the science of good sense applied to public affairs. Race is just one corner, albeit a very ornate corner in a very big room in our very big house, of public affairs, economic affairs, gender affairs. But race, especially as it relates to white and black folks, provides a rich and varied and tactile case study in the dynamics of a poetics of politics, aesthetic of politics, dynamics of politics. A political cast, a political past gives each of us an unavoidable political slant. The question is how might we slant, how might that slant be represented? So I have a few poems where a few poets are representing that slant. And I'm not providing copies of three of the four poems, uh, partly because they'll just distract you if you read them. So, and partly, you know, they're easy to find. Uh, if I could have found, like, Audre Lorde Reading Power, I probably would have included, included it as audio. Um, so we do have Langston Hughes, and you have that in front of you in the handout. And the others, I'll just sort of summarize. But as I said, some are infamous. All three of them, all, all three of them, except for the one that you have on the handout, are fairly well known. Um, so just imagine. That's one reason. The other reason is it's not really a close reading we're doing. I'm sort of using them as uh, to bounce off for the, the bigger thing that I want you to think about, which is what would your own poem, this is for everybody, nonfiction, fiction people, look like if you were modeling something on, on these examples. Uh, here and there, I'll suggest exercises in the spirit of philosopher Giambattista Vico's Verum Factum. Now, Vico is really uh, my man. You can look him up on Wikipedia. 
So his principle is maker's knowledge. If you know, it's DIY, essentially. Uh, the notion that knowledge comes through creation, not observation. So not I think, therefore I am, which is Descartes. More like uh, I make, therefore I grasp. That's my version of it. Do it thyself to know thyself. So which is to say, I'm more interested in you imagining what kinds of risks you would take to do your version of these poems. For example, you might think of the following quote from the Negro artist and the racial mountain, Langston Hughes' 1926 political slash aesthetic manifesto. No great poet has ever been afraid of being himself. You might think of that on your way to your own political aesthetic manifesto. Hughes, who was 24 at the time, was applying the science of good sense to black life. This is the mountain standing in way of any true Negro art, he wrote. This urge within the race toward whiteness, the desire to pour racial individuality into the mold of American standardization and to be as little Negro and as much American as possible. Though he never uses words like politics or political in the essay, it was written in direct response to a debate about the politics of blackness. Then, and people have forgotten about this. So, you know, it's anthologized a lot. And people forget about his age, and they forget about the context under which he wrote it. The Nation magazine had solicited him to write a response to the Negro art hokum, uh, prominent black journalist George Shiler's essay arguing against black aesthetics. Because a few, this is uh, Shiler, because a few writers with a paucity of themes have seized upon imbecilities of the Negro rustics and clowns and palmed them off as authentic characterization of Afro-American behavior, the common notion that the black American is so different from his white neighbor has gained wide currency. Why should Negro artists of America vary from the national artistic norm, Shiloh wrote. Somebody should do a movie about him. He's also very interesting, really strange uh, brother, but we could talk about him at lunch. Uh, insisting what other Cultural, so Schuyler's insisting what others call cultural distinctions were simply Negro stereotypes. So he writes this, he puts it in the nation in 1926, and then they solicit Langston Hughes, whose book, uh, Weary Blues, had come out that year. So he's 24, but he has published the book, and he is sort of seen as a kind of prodigy. So they ask him to write a response. So a week later, after Schuyler's essay saying there is no black art, comes the Negro and the racial mountain. So the nation and George Schuyler's pivotal role in the essay's origin have faded, but Hughes' insistence that young Negro artists use their art to declare, I am a Negro and beautiful, quote unquote, has certainly endured. Decades after the Harlem Renaissance, we could hear Hughes in the Black is Beautiful chants of the 60s and 70s, and we can hear him echoed in today's Black Lives Matter chants, or some of us hear it. Those who retort all lives matter seem to hear the assertion as Black Lives Matter more than others. I hear it as Black Lives Matter as much as others. Likewise, it can appear Hughes's manifesto only matters to blacks. I suggest he and the implications of his essay matter as much as other poets and assertions about American poetry. His notion of black poetics, a poetry placing black life at its nexus, is no different than confessionalism, a poetry placing a poet's life at its nexus. Certainly, Robert Lowell would have written about his blackness. He comes close in For the Union Dead, had he been black. Certainly, Sylvia Plath would have written about her blackness. She almost did an aerial, if you, maybe only a real poet, so no, that inside joke. Had she been black, you gotta read aerial, you see what I mean, it's the eyes. Uh, to suggest the difference is private confession versus public testimony underestimates the overlap of private and public life, 
personal and political life. Hughes makes no such distinction in his essay. Still, his charge against universal white standardization quickly morphed and endures as a call for black solidarity, seemingly irrelevant to all other writers. No wonder I've never read or heard a white poet claim to have been influenced by the Negro artists in a racial mountain. Do not come up to me later and be like, but I love that. I, I, don't say that. <laughs> what would that influence look like? No great poet has ever been afraid of being himself. What his essay suggests is not so different from Schuyler, actually, art reflecting a particular personal perspective. The essay is not political simply because it values black life, but because it values cultural and creative self-determination. So Langston Hughes's Negro Artist in a Racial Mountain uh, may not be quoted by many, but it has been an influence as that first sort of manifesto from, from black writers. In fact, Amiri Baraka, and this is my hunch, seems to have written his version of a Hughesian manifesto in the 60s where Hughes' essay was a benchmark statement of the Harlem Renaissance, 40 years later, Baraka's poem, Black Art, was a marker for the black arts movement. When Baraka later re recollected the aims of the movement, he said he wanted an art that would actually reflect black life and its history and legacy of resistance and struggle, which again is pretty much a summary of what is underneath Hughes' essay. His poem, Black Art, is according to his black compatriot Larry Neal, an amplification of the new aesthetics. So again, you can find the poem online. If you know it, you know, you're already offended that I even brought it up. Uh, it opens immediately with a surreal, almost absurd series of assertions about these quote-unquote new aesthetics. Poems are bullshit unless they are teeth or trees or lemons piled on a step. And then after some fairly outrageous, and here outrageous is synonymous with scandalous, brazen, vulgar, provocative. After some fairly outrageous race moments like setting fire and death to Whitey's ass, the poem offers an almost risque call to action. We want poems that kill, assassin poems, poems that shoot guns, poems that wrestle cops into alleys and take their weapons. Let there be no love poems written until love can exist freely and cleanly. I really told myself I would not go off script. But I have to say, one of the most exciting things in the poem is really none of the declarations and manifestos. It's the moment when he sounds like the airplane, if you know the poem. He has like 31 R's in a row. And then he goes, like 10 times. And then he goes, for 16 more R's. And then he says, that's the kind of, so that's exciting. That's like language poetry. Anyway, Hughes' essay ends with a similar, albeit less vitriotic call to action. Let the blare of Negro jazz bands and the bellowing voice of Bessie Smith singing the blues penetrate the closed ears of the colored near intellectuals until they listen and perhaps understand. We younger Negro artists who create now intend to express for our individual dark-skinned selves without fear or shame. So that's, again, lifted from Hughes's uh, manifesto. The great irony is, 40 years later, Langston Hughes found Baraka and the new young Negro artists and their new aesthetics, amplified aesthetics, influenced by his call for individual dark-skinned selves writing without fear or shame, he found that a little too fearless and a little too shameless. So Baraka says later on in the poem, fuck poems and they are useful, would they shoot come at you, love what you are, breathe like wrestlers or shudder strangely after pissing, I actually like that too, that's why I got that there. Uh, Baraka intensified Hughes the way John Coltrane's sax intensified Charlie Parker's sax or the way Jordan's dunks intensified the dunks of Dr. J. So in fact, maybe it's better if you use Baraka's poem as a model for expressing your own intense 
political slant. What would that look like? A counter to Baraka's black art, a complication, an intensification, a moral enhancement. So if you know the Baraka poem, you know I'm trying to get you in trouble. That's why I, I didn't bring it, because I want you to look at it <laughs> later and be like, whoa, what is this? But if a political poem has no interest in troubling and trouble, can we call it a political poem? I have questions like this, which is why I said it's not guidance. They're more like expert questions. I remember a young white brother, a tattoo peeking over his V-neck Wu-Tang t-shirt, said something like thug lives or thug lives. It might have been thug loves. I might have imagined it. This white dude presented his Baraka imitation when I gave this assignment. Uh, it, was, it was a burlesque, tongue-in-cheek reversal of Baraka. I'm not sure it was called white art, though he mostly simply said the opposite of everything Baraka said. And though he was a serious Baraka, Baraka acolyte, you can imagine the look in the eyes of my two black students, one the daughter of African immigrants and the other a middle-class Catholic black kid who said he had no real black friends in school. Uh, you can imagine their shock and suspicion. Was the white guy a little too ecstatic? <laughs> maybe one, maybe someone used, not for the first time, a word like appropriation, but it might have been inappropriate. Uh, should we and how might we distinguish politics from provocation? And this, of course, is one of the big questions about Baraka. Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart's definition of pornography provides the only useful answer, and you know this one. You know the difference when you see it. That's what Potter said about pornography. And then you must, so you must trust that you know what you are seeing or accept that you do not know and try seeing it anyway when it comes to like the political poem. Do you see this as a political poem? Do you recognize it? What is that genre? Do you trust it? What is the statement? To navigate, let me see, what is it? Oh, okay. To navigate the well-meaning white student's poem required not a moment of clarity or pedagogy, but a moment of negative capability, really of fertile uncertainty so that we could like, have a conversation about it in that space, which we did. Part two, power. Does anyone find it amazing that Hughes wrote The Negro and the Racial Mountain at the tender age of 24? It's at least as amazing as Keats writing about negative capability at the age of 22, maybe 21. Does anyone find it amazing and maybe a little frightening? We are still discussing the ideas of a 24-year-old and a 22-year-old. Maybe Keats would have refined his theory had he lived, because we still don't really know what it is. Hughes, as the record shows, made some noteworthy political refinements as he aged. While he wrote a direct, often socialist-tinged poetry in the 1920s and 30s, when he was in his 20s and 30s, by the 40s, he began to cloak his political ideas in prose most notably in his weekly newspaper columns featuring a sort of trickster, maybe Hughesian alter ego named Jesse B. Simple. As Arthur P. Davis note, as Arthur P. Davis wrote in his 1954 article on the character, Hughes gave Simple all of the modern Negroes militancy and impatience with compromise. No professional Negro leader, no Harlem orator, no follower of Marcus Garvey is more concerned about the fate and well-being of the black brother than Simple. One often cited example of Hughes' political views filtered through Simple occurs in a 1949 column titled, Simple Declares Bebop Music Comes from Bop, 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 Mop. And then Simple says in the piece, every time a cop hits a Negro with his billy club, the old club says, Bop, Bebop, Bop. That's why so many white folks don't dig Bebop. 
white folks don't get their heads beat just for being white. But me, a cop is liable to grab me almost any time and beat my head. While Hughes couched the police violence in anecdotal humor, Baraka's black art dreamed of violent retaliation. We want poems that wrestle cops into alleys and take their weapons, leaving them dead with tongues pulled out. That's hardcore, even as a cartoonish fantasy. A poem rooted in reality or realism would surely be just as challenging. Audre Lorde's power from her uh, 1976 book, Between Ourselves, for example, depicts police violence with a journalistic confessional I, E-Y-I and I, and is just as hardcore. And this is the second stanza in that poem. The policeman who shot a 10-year-old in Queens stood over the boy with his cop shoes in childish blood and said, die, you little motherfucker. And there are tapes to prove that. At his trial, the policeman said in his own defense, I didn't notice the size of nothing else, only the color. And there are tapes to prove that too. Audre Lorde said in an interview that the poem was a direct response to the news that a jury on which a black woman sat had acquitted the policeman in the shooting of an unarmed 10-year-old named Clifford, Clifford Glover. I was going across town on 88th Street and I had to pull over. A kind of fury rose up in me. The sky turned red. I felt so sick. I felt as if I would drive my car into a wall into the next person I saw. So I pulled over, I took out my journal just to air some of my fury to get it out of my fingertips. And those expressed feelings are that poem. So again, you can find power pretty, pretty easily. It might be on the Poetry Foundation even. If a political poem is not current, can it be an effective political poem? Lord's poem certainly feels current. In the past year since Michael Brown, you know, August ago, was shot by a policeman in Ferguson, Missouri, let's just say one could drown in the current. Uh, let's see. As I was working on this essay, a 21-year-old white man murdered nine black church members in Charleston, South Carolina. Presently, anything I write about it, phrase, that's the verb that comes to mind. Even my sentence a moment ago had to be stated as simply as possible to hide its fraying impulses. A 21-year-old white man hoping to begin a race war, 21 is not the age of a boy, though he looked like a boy with his page boy haircut, with his bony arms waving a Confederate flag. A 21-year-old claiming to be radicalized after the Trayvon Martin case, uh, he is just a year older than Martin would have been. It was not a case, really, was it? A 21-year-old white man radicalized by black-on-black -black violence murdered six black women and three black men during Wednesday night Bible study at the 199-year-old Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, my home state. There is, of course, a chance the writer using current events will be overwhelmed by emotion, despair, frustration, crippling outrage, in power, Lord uses journalism and intimate confession to create visceral, real-time witness. I have not been able to touch the destruction in me, she writes. And then in the final stanza, she writes, but unless I learn to use the difference between poetry and rhetoric, one day I will take my teenage plug and connect it to the nearest socket, raping an 85-year-old white woman who is somebody's mother and as I beat her senseless and set a torch to her bed, a Greek chorus will be singing in three, four time, poor thing, she never heard a soul, what beast they are. So you can imagine her again, having pulled her car over and heard the re response, writing this, this kind of response to the Clifford uh, Glover case. 
must a poem engage violence in some way if it is to be a political poem? So, and I don't ever say too much explicitly about that to answer that, but I feel like that's one of the questions under it, one of the things I mull over, what is the relationship between politics and violence? Um, poems are bullshit unless they are teeth, according to the beginning of Baraka's Black Art. The end of Lord's power does not articulate the difference between poetry and rhetoric so much as articulate the violent consequences of not knowing the difference. The change. 50 years after Hughes wrote, an artist must be free to choose what he does, certainly, but he must also never be afraid to do what he must choose. Etheridge Knight, the former prison poet and black arts poet we'll look at momentarily, he's, that's who, uh, whose poem we have in front of us. Uh, Knight said, any black artist whose main theme is not enslavement has to be lying or crazy because the most real thing to a human being is whether he is free or not, and we are not free. Everything else takes second place to that. So my question is, where do white people figure in this? Is this the presumption that white people are free and so the work comes easier? They don't seem especially free when it comes to writing about race. There's Sharon Olds on the subway from her 1987 collection, The Golden Cell, The Gold Cell, and more recently, Martha Collins' Blue Front, a 2006 book-length poem based on a lynching her father witnessed when he was five years old, and Martha Collins' 2012 collection, White Papers, a series of poems questioning what it means to be white, white in a multiracial society. But a line from Olds' poem on the subway underscores the nature of the work in those brave, important books, and I do underline, you know, brave, important, this is not to dismiss them. She says in that poem about the kid she sees in the subway, he is black and I am white, and without meaning or trying to, I must profit from our history. So they are repentant, they are steeped in penitence. But Tony Hoagland's poem, The Change, on the other hand, uh, attempts successfully or not to explore and transgress the dynamics of race without expressing explicit guilt or shame. In the poem, we find a white voice announcing its own, his own assumptions about blackness and then working through the burden of those assumptions. It opens with the speaker witnessing a tennis match featuring some tough little European blonde pitted against that big black girl from Alabama, corn-rolled hair, Zulu bangles on her arms, and some outrageous name like Vandella Aphrodite. A few lines later, the speaker stutters toward the confession that makes the poem so troubling or provocative, so political or apolitical, so racist or risky. I wanted the white girl to come out on top. To the speaker's shock, the black tennis player wins. Let's say she wins violently. Not only does she defeat her, quote, tough little European blonde opponent, she does so without mercy, kicking her ass good and relishing in that ass kicking, and that's pretty much what Hoagland says in the poem, which tells you, I think, some of his slant, uh, not towards the race, but towards the risk. The unintimidated black girl displays none of the good sportsmanship, none of the Christian civility MLK promised whites would find awaiting them on the mountaintop if they repented. I think there are two points of view being expressed in the poem, the speaker who laments the historical change that leads to the defeat, and the poet who aspires to the change. The poem has been the subject of many debates uh, among poets. My suggestion for folks who are troubled by the poem relates to something Saul Bellow once wrote in response to Vladimir Nabokov's novel, Lolita. So uh, I, he said this other thing before he got to that, which also is pertinent. 
do we need to read a novel about men having sex with small girls just because there are men having sex with small girls? Bello asks in a letter to a friend. <laughs> this is about Lolita. And a brother poet once asked me a similar thing about Hoagland's poem. Just because we know white people have racist feelings, do we need to read their racist poems? And my answer is yes on both counts, if those feelings are shaped, shapely, crafted, yes. But here's the thing that I really appreciate and what uh, Bello said, and this is an extension of the kind of like pseudo implied exercise here. Bello went on to say something like, uh, something that I like to propose to folks put off by certain political poems. What he said was, I could write a better poem from Lolita's point of view. <laughs> a poem written from the point of view of Lolita by Saul Bellow. <laughs> that would have been awesome. So what I really, I say, you know, well, write a better poem from the point of view of Vandella Aphrodite, if you have a problem, problem with the poem. Write a poem, write a novel in the voice of Mark Twain's Jim, or write a poem in the voice of one of Charles Bukowski's girlfriends. <laughs> one example of how such a POV shift might unfold is on the turning up of unidentified black female corpses. Toy Derricotte's poem from her 1989 book, Captivity. I realized through this passage that I didn't include any of these poems, but if you ask later, I, I can tell you where to find these poems. So the poem that Toy Derricotte wrote in Captivity reverses the angle of Henry Taylor's poem, Landscape with Tractor, from his 1985 Pulitzer Prize winning collection, The Flying Change, where Taylor's quatrains use second person address as its protagonist discovers the corpse of a black woman while mowing a lawn, Derricotte's quatrains use a first-person point of view that identifies the corpse. The reversal, uh, the poem is a reversal without simply indicting the white poet's perspective. Is it enough to simply name a witness or expose the crime? If a political poem points no finger, is it not a political poem? Again, these are just questions that come for me. The late Wanda Coleman specialized in sardonic reversals. In 2001's Mercurochrome, she imitates, translates, subverts, and upends the styles of dozens of canonical poets. There's Dream Song 811 after John Berryman, Supermarket Surfer after Allen Ginsberg, Coleman's To the Head Nigger Wench in Charge, which begins, I wanted to be sure I left my mark on you, is after Frank Harris, Frank O'Hara's To the Harbor Master, which begins, I wanted to be sure to reach you. A poem responding to a poem may seem fairly rudimentary, but it is at the root of how we understand art and by extension, others and ourselves. It is an act of maker's knowledge. I think not incidentally of the section discussing Serena Williams in Claudia Rankin's Citizen as a point of view reversal of Hoagland's poem featuring Vandella Aphrodite. Some of you may recall her discussion of the poem at the 2011 AWP. A question Rankin explores in Citizen is, what does a victorious or defeated black woman's body in a historically white space look like? This is lifted explicitly from Citizen. And of course, it is really the same question that Hoagland seems to be exploring in The Change. What does a victorious or defeated black woman's body in a historically white space look like? They just have different slants. Okay, for Langston Hughes. How are we doing? We're moving pretty good, okay. So after the grand jury declined to indict Officer Darren Williams in the shooting death of Michael Brown, a group of Cave Canem poets organized Black Poets Speak Out as a response. 
It was a sort of artistic extension of the Black Lives Matter movement, not unlike the black arts were an extension of the black power slash black panther movement. Hundreds of black poets across the US read the following words before they shared their poems. I am a black poet who will not remain silent while this nation, murder, while this nation murders black people. I have a right to be angry. I chose for my poem, Etheridge Knight's poem for Langston Hughes. So in Baraka's black art, the fantasy of violence is animated by theatrics, let's say. In Lord's power, the anger is animated really by powerlessness or impotence. Knight's poem for Langston Hughes seems at first glance to show the grief that can animate violence. So let's listen to him read it. So in this audio, he's going to also read, uh, or also recite another poem that will also come back to us. So let's see here which one of these is it. So let's, this is him reading the poem in 1980. Poems um, from I made up when I was present then. One, uh, Langston Hughes, uh, one of my mentors, and he died when I was in prison. And when I was a boy uh, in my teens, uh, one of uh, my group's favorite singer uh, was Billie Holiday, and uh, she had a, a record. It's called Strange Fruit. Uh, the beginning stanza of uh, Strange Fruit uh, went, a southern tree bears a strange and bitter fruit, blood on the leaves and blood on the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. And I, years later, after I got grown, I found out that uh, that was a poem of Langston Hughes that uh, Billie Holiday had ran across and liked and had put to music. So when I heard that Langston Hughes had died, I made a poem for For Langston Hughes, gone, gone, another weaver of black dreams has gone. We sat in Junebug's pad with the shades drawn and the air thick with holy smoke. And we heard the ladies sing Langston before we knew his name. And when black bodies stopped swinging, Junebug, T.G., and I went out and swung on some white cats. Now, I don't think the myth maker meant for us to do that, but we didn't know what else to do. Gone, gone, another weaver of black dreams has gone. So some of y'all are like, what? <clears throat> and I'll tell you what's up. Just be, be patient, be patient. What strikes me about the poem is not just the depiction of grief, uh, but the confusion between grief and violence. We didn't know what else to do, he writes. It reminds me of the violence in Ferguson and Baltimore. Media coverage is always heavy on disdain and surprise when riots occur. 
but Martin Luther King or Rodney King, rioting feels like a default response at this point. At such moments, rioting is a strategy, an act somewhere between anarchy going one way and revolution going the other. The only other option is to do nothing. So violence becomes a form of political action. Destruction, even when it's self-destruction, becomes a viable response to a failed state or to threats like the carpenter ant uh, exploding when it's being attacked. Uh, fortunately, political poetics or poetic politics gives us a means to make our angers, our frustrations, our fantasies, and of special interest to me, our confusions tangible. The poems by Baraka, Lord, and Hoagland express the confusion in and before and sometimes after political action. The confusion is often tied to vulnerability. Confusion over a shifting social dynamic and the change, confusion at the justice system and the black woman who participates in freeing the white policeman in power, and in the confusion that bleeds into something like slapstick and even hysteria in black art. But while the confusions in these poems seems directed and managed, the various confusions in and around Knight's poem could prompt one to ask if it's even a political poem at all. The moment he tells us about the holy smoke, we could rightly say these dudes ain't grieving revolutionaries, they're just high. But what moves the poem into the sphere of poetic politics or political poetics involves its blend of confusion and fantasy. For one thing, Knight was actually still in jail when Hughes died at 65 from complications related to prostate cancer, not like an activist death, he wasn't assassinated. Uh, thus, the reaction to his death, and by extension, the reaction to the song Strange Fruit, are imagined actions, they're fantasy. Furthermore, even if this was actually based on something Knight and his friends actually did after hearing Strange Fruit or hearing of Langston Hughes' death, the whole poem remains a fantasy in ways not even the author seems to recognize, right? Now, some people know where I'm going with this. Because contrary to what Knight says in his introduction to the poem, Langston Hughes did not write Strange Fruit. <laughs> Call it an example of literal political incorrectness. Strange Fruit was written by Abel Maripoff, a Jewish high school teacher in the Bronx after seeing, uh, I think it was a 1930, 1929 lynching photograph. Maripoff, who later, who'd later be investigated for communist sympathies, also adopted the two sons of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg after their execution for espionage. Also another one who needs a good movie or a literary biography or something. Some of y'all fiction writers, Abel Maripoff. It's a good story, that's a good story. So. He, after you do James Schuyler, uh, uh, George Schuyler. He published the poem in a teacher's union publication and in a Max, uh, Marxist journal, and then shared the song later with the club owner who subsequently gave it to Billie Holiday, who also occasionally said that she wrote the song. You know, it's my song. So poor Abel. He also wrote a song for Frank uh, Sinatra that you know, helped him pay for his mortgage. According to her biography, John Hammond, who had discovered Holiday as a teenager and produced her records at Columbia, called the song Strange Fruit, artistically the worst thing that ever happened to her. Holiday, he lamented, had become the darling of left-wing intellectuals and homosexuals because of that song. <laughs> Time Magazine denounced Strange Fruit as musical propaganda for the NAACP in 1939, and then ironically, Time also named it the song of the century in 1999. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it goes. So that's all to say the song was politically charged from the very beginning. Could 
would Langston Hughes have written such a controversial song? I knew I shouldn't have got this front and back. This is so confusing. In 1940, the same year Strange Fruit climbed to 16 on the Billboard charts, Hughes wrote a friend to say he was laying off political poetry for a while and going back to nature, Negroes, and love. Uh, he'd been in trouble. This is a side note. He had written a poem called uh, Goodbye Jesus, I think Goodbye Christ. And so he was getting into trouble. So he was like, I gotta, I gotta lay off this political poetry. So he hoped his new work would replace the more controversial poetry of his youth. And to go back to something I said earlier, this is also the decade when he comes up with simple and begins to figure out other ways to sort of make these statements without the confusion of the poet and the poem. So, but that didn't quite happen. He hoped to move past the controversial poetry of his youth. That didn't quite happen. In 1953, Joseph McCarthy and HUAC, the House on Un-American Activities Committee, asked him to definitively repudiate his former writings and philosophies. Quote, it is always, this is really crazy to think that somebody said this, it is always quite refreshing, I hear it with a southern accent, and comforting to know that any communist or communist sympathizer has discovered the error of his ways, one of the committee members said to Hughes. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't Strom Thurmond, but it could have been. That's who I hear. And I was hoping that you would have some real evidence of your change, that you have done and are doing what you can to make amends for whatever, for whatever damage you may have done by the previous writing. So, he, so there's Hughes, he's sitting there, and this is sort of what they're saying to him. Uh, about his previous work. So Hughes capitulated, and he said in response, in some countries, people are governed by rulers, and ordinary fo folks can't do a thing about it. But here, all of us are part of a democracy. By taking an interest in our government and by treating our neighbors as we would like to be treated, each one of us can help make a country the most wonderful country in the world, make this country the most wonderful country in the world. Such statements no doubt have contributed to the enduring image of a genteel and gentle Hughes. So I have a mark here, like am I really gonna go off script? Because I've gotten into some conversations with friends who say, well you know they had evidence of his uh, sexual proclivities, Langston Hughes, which still maybe people don't know, but they they'd sort of done some research and they knew uh, what he kept in his closet, so to speak. So my friends will say that's why he capitulated and said, you know, let me say this very nationalistic thing. But I say that still complicates the notion of like political risk. He lives in the canon as a poet who seems more social than political. In fact, biographer Arnold Rompersad opens the second volume of his Hughes biography with the quote Hughes wrote to himself a decade after this trial. So this is, you know, early 60s. The quote was, politics can be the graveyard of the poet. So in this volume, when you open it, that is the epigraph that sorts the whole thing in motion. And you can find it online occasionally, this idea of politics being the place to, where poets go to die. It seems far from the mountaintop aspirations of a 24-year-old Hughes, but it is only a partial excerpt of Hughes's note. A few lines later in the same note, he also writes, concerning politics, nothing I have said is true. A poet is a human being. Each human being must live within his time, with and for his people, and within the boundaries of his country. Therefore, how can a poet keep out of politics? Hang yourself, poet, in your own words, otherwise you are dead. So again, making a decision, which way are you gonna slant? Are you gonna just have this part? Or are you gonna have the whole quote? And that gives us again a sense of this enduring image of Hughes just being a partial image, in fact. As a 60 plus year old, Hughes meditates on the roles 
of politics and poetry, we see how one truth, a poet can exist within the boundaries of his country and people, complicates but does not cancel out the 20-something-year-old Hughes' self-determination where he says, we build our temples for tomorrow strong as we know how. We stand on the top of the mountain free within ourselves. One venturing in the space between art for others and art for the self must be simultaneous, contradictory, vulnerable, slanted. Such qualities are evident in the title of Hughes's final book, The Panther and the Lash, Poems for Our Time, published shortly after his death in 1967. The Panther of the title alludes to Black Panther, a poem in the book critiquing the strategies of black power militancy. The Lash, on the other hand, alludes to what Hughes calls the white backlash in his poem, The Backlash Blues. Like Maripol's Strange Fruit, the Backlash Blues poem is now less well known than the protest song Hughes's close friend Nina Simone made it into in the year of her death, in the same year of his death. And I actually have her talking about that a little bit here. And you can hear some It's much easier to hear those words coming from Nina Simone than it is Langston Hughes, but it's a direct transcription of the, the Langston Hughes poem. So the question is, was this what Etheridge Knight was thinking of when he was talking about strange fruit? Uh, and I have a bubble here, but I'm going to keep on going because we can speculate on how it is that he would confuse, if he did in fact confuse strange fruit with uh, Backlash Blues. As a side note, that recording from Etheridge Knight is like 1980, so I think plenty of time has passed for someone to come up to him in all the readings he gave between 1968, when the book was published, and 1980, and say, no, no, it was not Langston Hughes. But, so, so there are lines, we, again, uh, there are lines in the poem, in the song, if you can hear it, which are much more uh, progressive or radical than we think of uh, when we think of the work of Langston Hughes. Nonetheless, 
One reviewer of The Panther in the Last criticized Hughes for failing to take a side politically in the book. We are tempted to ask, the reviewer wrote, what are Hughes' politics? And if he has none, why not? The age demands intellectual commitment from its spokesman. So it's hard to hear Nina Simone or read the poem Backlash Blues and still question Hughes' intellectual commitment to politics. He was unwavering in his commitment to black culture, but that did not make him immune to political doubt. And isn't doubt often a byproduct of intellectual commitment? Hughes enacts Fisher Ames' extended definition. Earlier, I gave you a bit of it. Politics is the science of good sense applied to public affairs. But, Ames continues, as those are ever changing, what is wisdom today would be folly and perhaps ruin tomorrow. Politics cannot have fixed principles from which a wise man would never swerve. It is in Hughes' swerves and slants that a particular, peculiar, unpredictable political poetics emerges. The Langston Hughes, who could have written Strange Fruit, was always right there wrestling with the Langston Hughes, who could not have written it. Ethridge Knight opens the poem for Langston Hughes, unwittingly or not, uh, Ethridge Knight's poem for Langston Hughes, unwittingly or not, pays homage to our own human mix of conviction and confusion, belief and bewilderment, violence and vulnerability. We come back to a strange politics of negative capability. Maybe there is no true model for such a poem. Not long ago, I saw a, model, uh, a novelist gather a bunch of conference writers into a room and say to them, your assignment is to use I am of two minds in a piece of writing. She then left the room for the next hour. No discussion, no directions beyond the prompt. So I was in the corridor when the novelist reappeared near the end of the hour with a stack of papers in her hand. And I wanted to know her explanations, her aims for the assignment, nothing she shrugged. I just realized I needed to make a bunch of copies, so I gave them some busy work. <laughs> right, okay. But inadvertently, or not, like Etheridge Knight, she tapped into what I'm trying to argue for here, a political art with some manner of tension and indeed uncertainty. You need no prompt. You can do it yourself if you commit to at least two minds in the work. Go on that stretchy, sketchy little tightrope between art for others and art for yourself. What does your political struggle, your political slant look like? Give it some thought, then give it some shape. Be honest, be stupid, be brave. Thank you. <laughs>
Renee Gladman, Lisa Jarno, and Douglas Kearney, as well as links to supplementary materials on each lecturer's archive page, including selected writings and a link to available books. This podcast was produced by me, Ellen Welker, with help from Caitlin Airy Johnson. Thank you to Breadlow for originally partnering with us on this event, and thank you for listening. Stay tuned for Season 4 of the BWLS podcast, just a couple of weeks away, which will feature the lectures of Cedar Saigo in advance of his forthcoming book of these lectures, Guard the Mysteries, out June 2nd on Wave Books. Music is I Recall by Blue Dot Sessions, from the Free Music Archive, CC by NC.